Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Hello, Sharon. How are you doing today? Good. How are you today? Well, the beach is beautiful. I'm down here working, as you know, and it's stunning outside. And I've only been outside once in three days. Oh, (laughs) wow. You're hard at work, right? I am. But, you know, work makes me happy. That's right. Trying to get this thing behind you, too. So. Yep, yep. Yep. Only, oh, good gracious, three weeks and I'll get to wear that regalia that I thought that I was going to burn about three weeks ago. I swore I wasn't even taking it out of the box. <laughs> well, I just, I just can't wait to see what you do next. You know, what's next? MBA, oh, you know, me. I mean, where are we going, Sharon? No, it, you know, you know, it won't be a, a darn MBA. You know me better than that. That'll be you. You're going to be doing uh, that. Well, we also want to say hello to our listeners and welcome to the show today. And we have some very special guests along with us today. We have Dr. Jerry Hogan. Welcome, Jerry. Hey, how y'all doing? <laughs> you can tell you're in the South, Jerry. Hey, how y'all doing? Oh, hey, y'all doing? Sorry. <laughs> how y'all doing? That was how, a good one. How are you doing? <laughs> I'll straighten up my act now. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have Dr. Chuck Griffiths. Welcome, Chuck. Well, hello, everybody. It's really great to be here. You all were so nice to invite me. Oh, and I want to let everybody out there know that Chuck has a sparkly rhinestone CRNA pin on, beautiful pin. Um, don't know who else wears one like that or where you could have gotten that one, but it's, look, you're, you are wearing it well, Chuck. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, 
I like to shine it in the eyes of the legislators when I go in their office and they're just like, where's that light coming from? <laughs> <laughs> light coming from? And I'm just like, oh, look over here. You can see. Uh, B-R-N-A. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. Uh, I love it. Well, we, I think we all know each other pretty well and it's a... Uh, Great to be back with you guys, but the topic we're going to be talking about today is a pretty serious topic, and Sharon, we're going to be talking about suicide prevention and PTSD, and as we know, these are topics we don't like to talk about, but they're topics that need to be broached, especially in the environment that, you know, not only we've been in the last year, but on top of that, you know, what you guys do is a very stressful occupation and we need to have these conversations so so jerry why don't you give our listeners that might not know you a little bit about your background sure well um i've been a crna for um geez coming up to what 20 almost 29 years uh graduated in 1992 from anesthesia school with sharon actually we were in the same class oh <laughs> and, god uh, jerry uh, now sorry. i know oh, wait. No, you no, just no, sold sorry. her yeah, down the that, river jerry i love it <laughs> <laughs> um, and it cut that part out, doesn't it? Anyway, um, I am also a board-certified psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. I took my uh, post-9-11 GI Bill money and had nothing to do with it, nothing I could use it for. So I went back and I did a post-master's certificate at Stony Brook University, which is State University of New York, Stony Brook's School of Nursing, and got my post-master's certificate in advanced psychiatric mental health nursing, um, sat to the ANCC exam and passed. So I am actually uh, licensed in Florida as both a CRNA and a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. So what? it wasn't just money that you had this pool of money that motivated you to go back and get this degree. Tell us a little bit about why you did that. There's got to be another motivating factor there. Absolutely. So I did, I was in the United States Air Force. I did nine years of active duty and 15 years in the reserves. As a reservist, I was deployed twice to Afghanistan. And during those Afghanistan deployments, I wasn't doing anesthesia. I was actually at that time, the chief nurse of an air medical evacuation squadron. And the second time I was there in 2010, it was incredibly busy. And I was in charge of the ground air medical evacuation assets that were at Bagram Air Base, which is was the big hub in Afghanistan for both inter and intra theater transport. So we got uh, st- patients that came from all over Afghanistan to Bagram and then went from Bagram to Germany once they were stabilized. So my uh, 12 hour night shifts, seven days a week for six months involved going and either loading or retrieving people from airplanes that had been injured in the Afghan conflict. And, what I noticed was that a lot of the people that I was there with at the time were having some issues with post-traumatic stress disorder, signs and symptoms of it. And I could see it. I didn't really know as much about it as I wanted to. So what happened then was we got home of all the people that I was there with, about three or four of them are on 100% VA disability now for for post-traumatic stress disorder. And I wanted to understand it better. I wanted to get a better understanding of what was going on. Why wasn't I you know, having as many issues as they, I had my own issues. Don't get me wrong. I did because, you know, when you see people missing limbs and, you know, and the carnage that we saw on a nightly basis every day, you know, for days and days and days on end, it gets to you. It does. It starts to get to you. So I went back and I decided that the best course of action for me was to understand something better was to be educated more about it. So I went back and I was able to spend time at the VA as part of my clinical in my program, and then also to volunteer at the PTSD clinic for the VA. 
and I've got to spend time with VA at the VA with veterans in their PTSD treatment programs and really learned a lot and have still learned a lot and are still, I'm still volunteering in the PTSD clinic. And it's not something I could do as a full-time job because of my other obligations, but it's certainly something that's very interesting to me, something that I've spent a lot of time with. And strangely enough, I've, with this, I've actually seen some of this in, in students and CRNAs. We've had discussions about this. I've, I've lectured at state meetings about PTSD and CRNAs because our job can be very, very stressful sometimes. And sometimes the outcomes aren't exactly what we would hope for or, or catastrophic, and it starts to build up for some people. So that's pretty much the reason why I did it. And, you know, it's, it's been good for me because it really gave me a lot of insight into what I was, what I was suffering with, the problems that I had. So. Well, thank you, Jerry. And also thank you for your service and what you've done for our country as well. We appreciate that. And Chuck, why don't you, uh, you tell our listeners a little bit about you and your background? Well, sure. Thanks. I guarantee I'm the oldest person on this call. (laughs) (laughs) Just put in my application for social security. I'm proud to say, and I can't wait to get it. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Get a little bit back. I graduated from CRNA school uh, from the uh, UCLA program of nurse anesthesia with a master's degree back in 1981 and stayed on and worked at UCLA for the next like, gosh, 35 years, was intermittently the chief and then, you know, clinical coordinator and then the chief again, and then finally the program director and then the chief again, you know, back and forth like we all do, just a number of different positions. And in 2000, I had gotten to the point where I really was interested in pain I'd never been trained as a pain practitioner. So I went to school at the UCLA School of Nursing and got my PhD in nursing. And I specialized in pain physiology with kind of a minor in opioid pharmacology and addiction. So it was a really great course of study for me. And it's resulted in a lot of really good publications and studies that my team has done in that area. Um, Currently, retired from clinical practice the last couple of years, But I continued to work because, you know, it's just hard to lay it all down. And I just didn't know what to do with myself. At first, I didn't know whether I was going to continue to do anything health related, but I just couldn't stop. So I started, you know, I'm a professor at the School of Nursing at UCLA because I got my PhD there and and I taught there as well. So I went back first to them and started teaching for them, teaching NPs because they don't have a CRNA program anymore. And then my CRNA program that I graduated from, which is now moved to the University of Southern California in LA, USC, called me up and asked me, you know, can you come back and help us? Because we're moving into the DNAP framework and we need help from PhDs. So I went over there about five years ago and started teaching research. And I've been there ever since as a faculty member and just love it. I love the students. I get to go to the OR, you know, and visit them. I don't actually work with them, but I get to visit them, visit the OR. I get to go to the sim lab and do some, you know, work and stuff and try to remember how to do all that intubation thing we all learn how to do, you know, and, you know, all that monitoring stuff. And it's just really good for me. It's been interesting because in the last few years, I have started looking into another area for research, and that is the wellness area. Two years ago, I applied to and got put on the AANA Wellness Health and Wellness Committee, which is the committee in the AANA that looks at that healthy work-life balance. Started back in 2004 at the AANA as a wellness initiative, and it continues today. And I just was, have been interested in how can I help 
all of us in the struggles that I know I've gone through as a CRNA, and I know so many of the others of us go through too, but things that we don't like to talk about particularly for a lot of reasons that I'm sure we'll get into later on. And I just thought, how can I help? And I figured, you know, now that I'm retired from clinical practice, I got to do something. So I've kind of started now shifting my, my focus to the wellness area and uh, put together a team for my first study in this area. We are going to do, we are going to repeat the wonderful, wonderful study that Tony Chippis, Anthony Chippis, Dr. Chippis did back, back in 2011 and 2012 on looking at stress and SUD and factors like that in the student and CRNA population. It was groundbreaking work. Wonderful. And so what we basically, what our team is doing is we're looking at what Tony did with his permission and we've upgraded it and added to it and evolved it like he would want us to do and does want us to do. And so we're going to be doing this survey study and hopefully releasing it later on this year to our student and faculty population, surveying both students and faculty about what does cause suicidality in our students. What are some of the factors that we're seeing now that maybe we didn't see 10 years ago? And how well is our wellness program working? So that's kind of <clears throat> where I'm at in my career and, and what I'm doing these days and, and happy to keep contributing to this profession. It's given so much to me over the years. Yeah. And Chuck, thank you. Thank you for that introduction and all you're doing and have done for CRNAs, obviously. And we're going to be talking about suicide prevention and PTSD. And Chuck, why don't you tackle, you know, here, why suicide prevention and, and why is this so important right now? Well, I think that there's a number of different reasons. CRNAs in particular, which is a population, of course, that we're all most concerned with, are under a lot of stress for many, many reasons. There is an epidemic of suicide right now in our country. Some of the statistics that I've gotten are pretty grim. Suicide is actually, there was a 31% increase in suicide between 2001 and 2017. And it's the 10th leading cause of death in the US for people that are ages 10 to 34. And for people that are ages 35 to 54, it's the fourth leading cause of death. So it's very significant. Wow. Wow. We've just had lots and lots and lots of deaths from suicide, and we continue to have that. I know we've, we've heard about a lot about this in our veteran population, but it's really all over, and it's definitely in our professional population. And talking about CRNAs, I was trying to think of some of the reasons why we are under such stress as a population of healthcare workers. And some of the things that I came up with from my own personal experience, from being shared with by my peers, and from the reading and studies that we've done previously... We all have these, we all come to the job with a personal mental health history. And sometimes that mental health history, and, you know, I can see my colleague, Dr. Hogan, shaking his head here, that personal mental health history impacts on everything else we do. If we come to the job already with a history of, let's say, depression, mm -hmm. or a history of one of the anxiety disorders, it's only going to make this challenging, terribly challenging job that we do even harder. So I think that's one thing that contributes to suicidality in our population and why it's so important. All of us as healthcare practitioners, we all encounter challenging life events. We may be healthcare practitioners, but we still have moms and dads that pass away. We have financial challenges where we lose everything for making some dumb investment. We have divorces. We lose relationships. We have a sudden need to change jobs with all the uprooting that goes with that. We bring that into this challenging environment, the nature of the profession. 
heck, I can't tell you how many patients I lost over my career because I worked in a top level trauma center. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of times when I was working three to 11, you know, they'd bring patients up from the ER and it would be just basically an autopsy in the OR. You know, I mean, because the patient was already just non-salvageable, but we want to give maximum, you know, ability to, to, to at least try if we can to save a life. And so I would lose patients. And I know we all have had those experiences. So just a lot of factors like that, I think, play into why looking at suicide and suicide prevention is so important for us, because we do continue to have anecdotal reports of both CRNAs and students whose lives are lost to suicide. And whatever we can do to help with that situation, we need to try and do. Well, let's go back just a little bit to obviously one of the precursors to suicide is PTSD. And a lot of our listeners may know that there was a huge hero in our community just succumbed to PTSD and ultimately death. But Jerry, why don't you talk about why it's often unrecognized or misdiagnosed? Because as someone who, I mean, all of us knew Steve, but it was such a shock to the community because he was absolutely on the outside, looked like the most put together person you could ever meet in your whole life. And none of us knew that he was suffering so. So Jerry, why don't you give us some insight into that? Well, sure. So, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon, PTSD, because it's um, a lot of times, a lot of the issues that involve PTSD are things that a lot of us can disguise and make up for, or to try to find ways to minimize, you know, things uh, that are, are, are bothering us or, or outward signs that we show to other people. You know, that whole of uh, the nightmares, the flashbacks, the triggers, the reliving stuff doesn't necessarily have to be very outward and something that you you might see. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not going to say, hey, boy, I had this really bad nightmare about Afghanistan the other night or yesterday or whatever. That's not something that people are going to come out and say. They're just not, they're not, it's just not in their, you know, it's just easier to do the avoidance things, you know, avoiding crowds, avoiding people, avoiding remembering, avoiding reliving experiences, you know, and so what you see a lot of times in people with PTSD is a lot of times it's what the beginnings of what you see in people who have depression and depression, a lot of times, uh, major depressive disorder patients, you're going to see things like loss of appetite, something we call anhedonia, which is a loss of pleasurable things of finding or doing anything that brings you pleasure. You know, you end up with uh, feeling guilty sometimes, feeling ashamed. And what the worst thing is, is when it comes down to those feelings of hopelessness and worthlessness. When hopelessness and worthlessness set in, that's when the rationalization in your mind starts with the how you can convince yourself the world's better off without you. And it's a slippery slope for some people. It's It can be very difficult. Once they start rationalizing how everyone and everything is going to be better if they're no longer part of the picture, then that becomes a problem, you know, and, and that becomes a red flag. And, and unfortunately, sometimes it's just not as it's not like, you know, diabetes, where you can, you know, finger stick someone and see what their blood sugar is, or, you know, where you can do labs and find out whether or not they have whatever disease they have. I mean, mental health is, is very different. And some people put up a very, very good facade. Well, know? speaking of the good facade, I guess it's the people closest to them that might have a clue and nobody else may. And I'll just 
share, of course, Jerry and I have known each other for 30 years and I can absolutely pinpoint the exact moment that I knew that you were having a little bit of an issue and we had been texting one night just rapidly texting back and forth and we were having a disagreement which we've had multiple disagreements over 30 years and then all of a sudden I get this text and it says I'm just I'm just done I'm done I'm done with you I'm like what is wrong with him and I can remember calling your wife the next day and saying something's wrong here you need to let me know what's wrong but you know of course I thought I kind of knew but it was just something that was so out of character of you because I know that you're the man who would walk through fire to come and get me out of a burning house and I'll never forget that moment and then I you know, I had heard you talk about some of the things that you had seen and I thought you were doing okay. I mean, you're taking care of kids the same age as your kids and you're seeing the carnage that's going on. And, you know, it was, it was interesting. I've learned a lot from you in that regard. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Hey, Jerry, while we're talking about that, do you have any examples of maybe PTSD starting to develop in CRNAs or SRNAs or something, you know, concrete that maybe would be a signal, kind of a sign like Sharon was talking about? Well, what Dr. Griffith said is 100% true is that people bring their life experiences and their genes to the party, basically. They bring, you know, it's a combination of lived experiences and genetic predispositions that a lot of times uh, predict mental health or can be predictive of mental health issues. And so a lot of times what it is, is I I think where we need to be better and where we're not very good at is we're really not good at that debriefing, that critical stress debriefing after a bad thing happens where we're we're taking those people and we're we're trying to mitigate the effects of the situational anxiety, whatever else happened to them and, and maybe the guilt and maybe the reliving, trying to figure what they could have done differently, all of those things that people do. And, and we're not very good at uh, helping people out after a bad incident happens in anesthesia. And that's a bigger concern to me, is that we're not good at doing stress debriefing. We, we do this, um, there's this thing called um, name, shame, and blame which is basically, you know, naming the person, you know, shaming them for, well, what'd you do that for? And blaming them for the event that happened. When there's a sentinel event or a critical stress event, 
we should be lifting people up. We shouldn't be pointing fingers. And and I think that's, you know, where I see it the most is, you know, I'll have students that come to me and they'll like, we have students that are at a, a level one trauma center. And when they have a bad night and something like what Dr. Griffiths explained earlier, you know, in the, in the working through to 11 in the at level one trauma center, when they have bad outcomes, negative events that happen, they just want to talk about it. You know, they want somebody to talk about it. And, you know, and, and when everybody else around them is telling them, hey, you know what, just suck it up, and move on. That's what anesthesia is all about. It just happens. Yeah. That's not the right answer. That's yeah. not, that's not what it is. So for me, I try to look at, I can tell when they're stressed out, when they're starting to get, you can see it in their coursework. You can see it in their interactions that you have with them, you know, and I encourage them. I said, my door is always open, you know, come talk to me. And they do, you know, that's the one thing about it that I'm, I'm so grateful of is there is no subject that's off limits and there's nothing when they're stressed out. And sometimes I mean, just being a student can be stressful, you know, in and of itself. And it's a resilience thing to me. I, what I find as time goes by is, is I don't, people just don't seem to have the toolkit for the resilience you know, and I'm not sure where that comes from, but, but yeah, those are the biggest things I see, especially with students, you know, with CRNAs, it could be a number of things. It could be things far, you know, outside of the anesthesia world, you know, any sort of traumatic event can trigger, you know, PTSD and everybody grieves, you know, normal grief lasts about six months, but once it gets past that six month point, now you're getting into pathology and you're starting to think, you know, maybe there's something else involved here that we need to start working with. So um, it's the referral and don't shame people if they're having problems. It's not a sign of weakness. You know, that's the biggest part. And that's internal with a lot of people too, is they feel like, you know, if I say something's wrong with me, you know, it's going to be a sign of weakness. When I was in the Air Force, if you went and said, I think I have PTSD and, you know, I was in an air medical evacuation squadron and they were, they're going to take you off flying status, especially if they put you on medication, they're going to ground you. So people are like, I'm not saying a word because I'm going to get grounded, you know, if I say anything. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword that's out right. there, but, you know, with students, they're afraid that if they come in and report something that we're going to tell them that they're not fit for the job, you know, and they worry about that. So, you know, it's having that open, open communication with them and their ability to talk to you about just about anything and listening. It's the listening piece that's the most important, not the advice piece, it's the listening. And Jerry, that's true with all mental health. You know, I think there's a stigma surrounding it still to this day that, you know, people are shamed or they think they're going to be shamed or, you know what, I'm crazy or, you know, something along those lines. So Or weak. Yeah, or weak. Yeah, which we know no CRNA wants to ever be seen as weak for sure. So, And Jerry, you know, I was kind of shocked going through some of the notes that you sent us the amount of people that are affected by PTSD. You want to talk about that for just a second? Well, it's estimated about 7 to 8% of the U.S. population will have some sort of uh, PTSD at some point in their lives, which is a significant number of people. So, yeah. you know, and it can happen from any number of different, you know, could be a, anything from a car accident to uh, witnessing something traumatic to a, you know, like a catastrophic, like a hurricane, tornado, act of nature, not just war. And so um, it is a significant number of people in the population and it's difficult to treat, yeah. treat effectively. You know, when I went for counseling at the VA, I didn't feel as though that was another thing that drove me into the, to become a psych mental health NP was that I really felt like the therapist that I was seeing wasn't really helping me at all. I didn't really feel like I got a lot of minimalizing, a lot of, um, oh yeah, I hear that all the time, you know, kind of mm -hmm. stuff. And I was like, I don't want to hear that from you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so for me, it was, you know, it, it's um, the listening piece and just, you know, and sometimes they just want validation. They just yeah. want you to say, 
just do you think it's yeah. been beneficial jerry it sounds like it, it's kind of like the aa model it takes a drunk to know a drunk kind of thing so you feel like that you are more helpful because you do know do you feel like that's the, kind of the same model sure in working in the ptsd clinic it's more of an empathetic you know relationship that i have i don't feel bad for people that are there it's like when you know they talk about their experiences i i can talk about mine as well and i can say hey listen you know i i understand where you're coming from i wasn't you know getting shot at necessarily which is a whole different you know you go home for that right (laughs) so but but i i was you know when you're in theater the thing about you have to understand but when you're in afghanistan or someplace like that is um the basic bagram got we, we got either rocket mortared attacked you know occasionally they would come you know and so those those things are always looming in the back of your head you're busy doing something and the next you know you hear the alarm go off and you hear you know um you run to the bunker in hopes that you're going to get there and who knows where the bomb's going to land or where the mortar's going and that's kind of just this beats on your on your brain you know for yeah. for days and days and days on end and so i could see where people get you know a little bit you know where, where it gets people ra- a little ragged you know feeling yeah but um for me I like to think that I was able to take the resources that I had to work through problems to it's in the insight insight in anything in mental health is just, that's the key is knowing. And, you know, the whole thing you were talking earlier about suicidality is that, you know, suicide and depression or PTSD are kind of like apples and oranges. There's no direct correlation between how suicidal someone is and how depressed they are. You can have people who are profoundly depressed and not at all suicidal. You can have people who are only mildly depressed who are just extremely suicidal. There's no, it's not like they're, there's any correlation between the two. And so it's always the asking piece, right? And, but I don't want to, I know Dr. Griffiths has a lot to say about that. So, um, you know, but just recognizing and being there for people. I think that's sometimes it, it sounds doesn't sound like much, but you'd believe, you know, we wouldn't believe how important it is to people. Yeah. Hey, Chuck, you know, while we're kind of bridging back and forth here, you know, why is it that CRNAs are prone to losing their lives through suicide? And I guess the other part of that is what brings someone to the brink of suicide? Because, you know, for a lot of people, that's really hard to understand how someone gets to that point. Well, you know, in the work that I've done so far, you know, and I invite Dr. Hogan to comment on this from his perspective as a mental health provider as well, but from the work I've done so far, what I've seen in my career, I think there's a number of reasons that I, I feel are true. And I think maybe one big reason is that CRNAs don't want to admit they're weak. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to take care of themselves because we're all so hardwired programmed to take care of everybody else. So the focus for care in my life as a CRNA is that patient that presents him or herself before me or that friend that comes to me and says, I've got a problem. I need some help from you. Not me. I don't look in the mirror and say, you know what? I'm not feeling so good. I think I need some help. I better go out and get it. I think people, CRNAs are reluctant to ask other people for help because I think Sharon alluded to the fact that makes us look weak. And if you say, I want help because... I'm feeling like I'm going to harm myself. You don't want to sound quote. And I use this term as a quotation, crazy unquote, because a lot of times the people that go into anesthesia for training, go into anesthesia because they are not mental health professionals and they don't want to be mental health professionals. 
They don't want to think about that part of our lives and psyche, the mental part. They want it in numbers. They want the facts, stick to the facts, please. They want to look at the monitor, the cardiac monitor and the blood pressure monitor and the SAT and say, okay, this is my sources of information. It's not about that brain because that brain is sleeping away right now. I don't have to worry about it. My rapport, establishing a patient rapport as a nurse anesthetist is this syringe full of white liquid. <laughs> and I give half of that syringe and I've got that nurse anesthetist rapport going. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that's the way a lot of people in anesthesia are. Yeah. And it's fine for when you're taking care of people in the GI suite. That's what I want. I want that white stuff. Thank you. But when you are looking in that mirror and thinking to yourself, I think I'm going to harm myself if I don't get some help, then that attitude can hurt you. And I think that that's a big part of the reason why CRNAs are prone to suicidality. The other piece of it is what we work in. We work in, and we've talked about this in several from different perspectives so far in this talk, is we all work in a very stressful, high stress environment. And I know we've talked about, you know, losing patients. And by the way, I have to put a plug in for my wonderful friend, Dr. Maria Van Pelt, who's done some wonderful work in the area of people recovering from second victim, which is what we call the healthcare provider when you lose a patient, because it's not just that patient and their family, you know, you're affected too. But we talked about the stressful environment from the point of view of taking care of the patients, but we're actually trained to take care of those patients and do our best for them. But a big part of what I've, I've encountered in my own career and I see in my students is trying to deal with the people around you on that team that you're working with. People that come into anesthesia sometimes think that we wind up just sitting on this stool, dialing in gas and putting tubes and needles in people. But it's a hugely human affair doing what we do for a living. You have a whole team of people that are coming to you from their own mental health you know, perspectives and their own power hierarchy in that operating room. The operating room has a huge power hierarchy to it with the surgeon at the top and anesthesia somewhere down here, you know, in kind of a fuzzy area, but definitely underneath the surgeon and or proceduralist. And so you have to learn how to navigate that successfully because that can make even if you, if you have a really sick patient, at least you know, you know you've been trained what to do about that. But if you work in a very dysfunctional situation where you've got human beings you're interacting with that are putting you down, attacking you, that themselves have obvious mental health problems and should probably be hospitalized, but here they are helping you take care of a patient, it can be very, very challenging. And I think that's another reason that leads us into areas where maybe eventually we get to the point where like Dr. Hogan said, we can't see the way ahead. The solution to our problem is, okay, the world's going to be better off without me because I cannot figure out how to deal with all this craziness around me. And, you know, I think the world will be better off without me. So I hope that helps to answer your question. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So Chuck, let me ask you a question. What if you know somebody and you think they could be prone, is it okay to ask them? Are you thinking about taking your own life? Well, you know, there is actually, a, I have learned in my work on this, and I'm sure Dr. Hogan knows about this already, but I've actually learned in my work on this, asking someone if you are thinking about taking your life, you know, are you, are you thinking about suicide? If you ask someone that, 
you should do it directly and it will not cause them to commit suicide. As a matter of fact, the information that I was told, and I think Dr. Hogan should comment on this as well, the information that I that I have been reading about in the literature on this indicates that it may actually help because then it means that someone's interested in you. Someone's reaching out to you. Someone's trying to build that bridge that you can't build for yourself to ask for help. Someone's saying to you, in, in essence, are you thinking about taking your life? Are you thinking about suicide? And the other part of that sentence is, I want to know because I'm here to try and help you. And I think that it's definitely okay to ask someone. And that if you think that someone, one of your colleagues is in that part of their life, that dark part, you should ask. If you see something, you should say something because you could save a life. Dr. Hogan, I'll yield the floor to you about that as a mental health professional. No, I, I agree with you 100%. There's never anything wrong with asking. Asking is important. And and I'm frank. And I, I just like Dr. Griffith said, I, I just ask him, are you thinking about hurting yourself? You know, I need to know because I'm worried about you. You know, and I, and I ask people that straight out. And, and you're never going to put the idea in anybody's head. If it's there, it's already there. It's not something that you're going to affect by asking. People are afraid to ask, but honestly, it's the best thing you could do. Now, you're going to get a lot of people who are going to obviously lie to you and tell you no. But, you know, if, if they're a good friend or there's someone that you feel like, you know, that they confide in, if they tell you yes, well, then let's go. If And if the answer is yes, then let's go. And then the red flag is the plan. So my next question when I ask them is, like, say, okay, you think about hurting themselves? If they say yes, I say, do you have a plan? And if they say to me, yeah, I'm going to take my, you know, gun and I'm going to go, I had actually had someone tell me one time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to drive to the beach access. I'm going to sit there while the sun is going down and then I'm just going to, you know, shoot myself in the head. And I was like, okay, well, let's go talk to somebody about this, you know? And then at that point in time, you know, you want to get that person treatment and however that works in your state, you want to get them, you know, taken care of, you know, Florida, we have a 72 hour involuntary observation period called a Baker Act which um, as a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, I can Baker Act someone if I felt the need to. But, you know, I'd, I'd rather, you know, you don't want to let them out of your sight either. If, if, if they're at that point, you don't want to let them do anything, be anywhere they're going to do anything. And you just you know, encourage them to go get treatment and take them someplace where you think that they can get the treatment that they need. It happens. You're going to run into people sometimes. It's going to happen probably sometime in everyone's life that they're going to run into somebody who's suicidal. And knowing what to do, is the important thing to ask and, and, you know, helping them to find the resources is really important. But the unfortunate thing is a lot of people don't, you know, how many times have you seen when things have happened? It feels like, well, I had no idea mm-hmm. that he was, you know, and, uh, you know, so a lot of people are not really outward in there, but maybe nobody saw what was coming. Nobody, maybe, you know, nobody saw the signs, and, yeah. you know, it's, it's hard sometimes. You know, it seems I actually so- have a word about that just to say real quick. And that is CRNAs are very good at hiding their emotions because we work in the operating room and a lot of times we work with people that we just really don't like personally but we work with them because we all have to make a living and the patients have to be taken care of and i've worked with so many surgeons and proceduralists that i could just never i would never be caught dead with outside that operating room but i'm in there i'm in the procedure room and we have to get the case done and i you know and i'm polite and professional I hide my feeling of not liking this person because they are providing the skill for my patient, you know, to take care of them. And I focus on that. And I think as CRNAs, we develop this skill and we can use it in company with our friends too, to put on that face, that public face where I'm fine. Everything's great. You know, I'm not having any problems, 
And what I've done sometimes to figure out when my friends were having a rough patch was I've done exactly what, what Sharon did when she was concerned, you know, about her own friend. And that is I talked to their significant other or to other friends that are close to them. And I say, what is it about, you know, Mac or Brian or Steve that's going on? Can you tell me I'm concerned? And sometimes it can give me a clue that maybe, you know, Mac or Brian or Steve wouldn't tell me, but they tell this other person. And then I'm, I at least have an idea of when to, to really try and reach out to and, and get help for the person or help the person be encouraged the person to get help for themselves. You know, I'm sitting here listening to this and the one word that just keeps coming to my mind is hopelessness. Mm. They're, they've reached this point that they have no hope in the future and they feel helpless and there's no hope. And, you know, at least that's what's in my mind. If you guys want to talk a little bit about that and how do you, how do you spot this in someone when they reach that point? Well, a lot of it's a lack of future plan, like uh, a lack of knowing that they're thinking that there's anything in the future. If you ask them like, well, what's your plans for next week or what are your plans for whatever? You know, one of the things, one of the tricks that I learned a long time ago was what I'll say to people sometimes just to try to catch them off guard is I'll just say, so I want you to finish a sentence for me. I would never hurt myself because... And if they just sit there and they can't come up with a reason, oh my. <laughs> you know, it's a problem. So yeah, it's, it's that hopelessness. The red flags for me are hopelessness and worthlessness. When they start expressing feelings of hopelessness and worthlessness, I'm, I'm really very concerned, starting to become yeah. very concerned. You know, that whole giving things away and that sort of stuff. Yeah, that, that I mean, I've, I've never really seen that happen, but I'm sure it does. But, you know, there's clues and hints out there, you know, that you can, you can pick up on from people, you know, and the world being better off without me is a, a big red flag. Hey, Jerry, you know, I don't know if there's statistics out there, but, you know, we're kind of bringing PTSD and, and suicide prevention here together. Are there statistics of how often when someone is going through PTSD that it leads to suicidal thoughts or suicide? Well, the thing about it's interesting is not, not everybody that has PTSD is suicidal. Right. You know, and so they're at a higher risk, significantly higher risk. There's some stuff that's been out there done by the National Center for PTSD as part of the Department of Veterans Affairs, where they looked at suicide and PTSD. And what they found was that it's more likely to happen in people who are diagnosed with PTSD at a rate of about 19 or 20 out of 100,000 people compared to about five out of 100,000 people who don't have PTSD. So the numbers it doesn't reflect like a huge difference in the numbers, but it is, you know, a more significant finding, I guess, in people with PTSD with suicidal thoughts. Again, it's all about asking the right questions and it's, you know, and not everybody who has PTSD is suicidal. Yeah. Well, that goes back to, I guess, maybe some resilience, but I mean, it goes back to a lot of things, you know, and I, this is just a, an analogy, how some people who come from humble beginnings and wind up excelling because they use that as a fulcrum, or why do some people have terrible beginnings and their life is terrible and they right. wind up in prison? I mean, we don't know some of those answers, I think, and I think it applies to this too. Chuck, I know that a and has got a lot of different 
resources out there. And especially, uh, you know, they've done a really good job with substance abuse disorder because we work in the candy store. But what about some of these other things with the suicide prevention? Does AANA have anything out there? Well, you know, again, two years ago, I got appointed to the AANA Health and Wellness Committee. I'm still on it now. And so the Health and Wellness Committee happened after the other committee that we have that looks specifically at SUD. We have, we have two wellness committees, I believe. One is the AANA Health and Wellness Committee, and the other one is the AANA Peer Assistance Advisors Committee. Mm-hmm. The Peer Assistance Advisors Committee was born back in 2004, after 2004, to look at and help people that had substance use disorder. As you just alluded to, CRNAs have access to dangerous drugs on a daily, sometimes hourly basis. And unfortunately, the disease of SUD progresses very quickly in anesthesia providers to being fatal because we have such access. And so the PAC committee, uh, the Peer Assistance Advisors Committee, really is the committee that is there for people that have SUD problems. We have an AANA helpline 24 seven staffed by people that can counsel folks that are from the Parkdale Center and Indiana Center on Addiction that's run by a CRNA, Rigo uh, Rodriguez, uh, Rigo Garcia, sorry, who is just a wonderful resource for all of us in dealing with all of this. And the AANA though, seeing that there was a lot of work-life balance issues that led to SUD problems decided a few years ago to found a separate committee called the Health and Wellness Committee. That committee is charged with trying to help us find that that successful balance between all the professional stresses and strains and the personal things that go on and sources of joy in our life. And so last year, the AANA board charged the Health and Wellness Committee with looking at suicide prevention. And so what we did in response to that is we got a whole bunch more information about suicide, including the number of the um, National Suicide Prevention Helpline and put that on the aana.com forward slash wellness space on the website. It's easy to find for anyone who's interested. We also got other articles and we also did, we submitted an abstract, were accepted and did a PowerPoint presentation on suicide prevention in CRNAs and SRNAs. And what we did in that one hour is we tried to look at all of the factors that we could figure out that may be more applicable directly to the CRNA and SRNA communities when it came to suicide. And of course, there was a lot of stuff we've talked about already today in that because suicide is a risk for everybody. It's just that it's elevated for us nurse specialists and especially in anesthesia. And So anyway, in answer to your question, the AANA doesn't have like a counseling line for people that are suicidal, but if someone is suicidal and they call our helpline, our helpline counselors will refer them to other resources specific to suicide, like the suicide prevention helpline. And of course, we'll keep them on the line, talking to them and try to get treatment for them, just like they would for someone calling up for SUD. Does that address? Yeah, that helps a lot. Now, I've got another question slash comment. You know, as an organization, and, you know, I have led this organization, so I'm in this category myself. As an organization, we've been very good about addressing substance abuse disorder. And I think, you know, that was a good thing. We have always touted the fact that 
CRNAs are always on the front lines. They are always the medical providers in all conflicts, but yet we have never addressed really head-on PTSD as an organization. And, you know, I guess it was a duh moment for me. Duh, why didn't we think of that? So, Jerry, do you want to follow up to that comment? Sure. Well, you know, um, the incidence of PTSD is is relatively rare considering, you know, you know, when you look at the, the number of CRNAs that are out there, it's hard to say. But I think that, you know, there's different levels. You can, it can be mild. It can be moderate. It can be severe. Some people can experience, uh, you know, daily reminders, uh, daily avoidance, hypervigilance, all of those things. So I guess it's kind of hard to gauge, but I guess, you know, our, considering how stressful and eventful our job is and the work environment and the stress that we put ourselves under, I think it would be a great thing that if we, we looked further into what we could do about that. And I think what I think, and again, just me and my opinion, is that our focus needs to be on the front end of things more than necessarily on the back. It's the, mm. the pound of prevention, you know, point. or ounce of prevention where the pound of cure thing. I can't even get that my saying straight. <laughs> Before you had me thinking about the old Southern saying, saying about um, don't get don't get above your raisin when you were saying <laughs> what you were saying before. <laughs> I heard that a lot as a kid, don't get above your raisin. Um, anyway, so. So maybe the AANA felt like, maybe we felt like we were addressing it by creating the wellness component and so you're saying oh good you're trying to prevent but I think as an association and I'm sure Randy Moore is all over this he's a veteran himself yeah hey Jerry what resources are available out there right now so since we're talking about this well of course the uh, AANA health and wellness site does have some PTSD resources there and also you know majority of all of the PTSD Research has been done mostly through the VA, and so there is a VA PTSD website with a lot of information there as well. It also has referrals to civilian programs for PTSD and also, you know, just helping people to recognize their symptoms. And the VA itself has a symptom tracker where we, uh, I was, uh, we downloaded it and every month it would send you a reminder. It says, hey, come, you know, do your little survey and see where you're at and see if your symptoms are getting any better or getting any worse or if you need. And it was kind of a good monthly reminder for me to, to just check in with myself to see where I'm at as far as things are, you know, we're concerned. So there's through the VA, there's a lot of, and of course you don't have to be a veteran to utilize the VA resources. So they're, they're there under the VA. If you just go to va.gov and, uh, or you just Google PTSD VA, it'll come right up with a lot of the different resources that they have. Yeah. So That's I could good. have sent that to your phone. <laughs> uh, yeah. Actually, I, I just look at it. It's, it's a ptsd.va.gov. Yeah. And there's a ton of information in there and links. And it, it said it has an app to track your symptoms. So it's kind of it like does. that COVID tracker, you know, after you got your yeah. shot, you got there's a mobile app. Text. Yeah, that's pretty that's darn nice, cool. Jared, because I mean, how how would you know if you had PTSD? I mean, you know, if you didn't, you know, you're just going along thinking, you know, maybe I'm just having a rough patch or things aren't going right. How how do you know? Well, again, I, th- I think there's. Oh, go ahead, Chuck. You're going to say something. I was just going to say I think that that kind of feeds back into the fact that denial is more than a river in Egypt. 
you know, yeah. I think yeah. uh, a lot of us CRNAs, we tootle along and we just figure it's a rough patch and I'm going to get through it and I'm just going to put my head down, put my shoulder against the plow and keep going and not yeah. stop, not reach out for help because if I do, I'll look weak or crazy and I can do this because, you know, I'm super nurse, super provider. I've never had to ask for help before. I sure don't have to ask for help now. I'm fine. You know, and we just run that tape endlessly and we just don't admit it because we just yeah. deny it, deny it. And then by the time people around us are saying, you know, what's wrong with Jerry? What's the problem here? I'm yeah. seeing something. We're into it because now, even though we're not admitting it, people around us are actually seeing some of the signs and symptoms that there's something wrong with us. Go ahead, Jerry. Sorry. No, no, I, I agree with you hundred percent. For me, it, it's, um, I guess, um, a lot of the symptoms of PTSD are things that maybe something you don't necessarily notice in yourself more. It's something that other people notice in you, you know, the uh, avoidance of people, the sadness, maybe the anger issues are a big problem. You know, the avoiding stressful situations, disconnecting from people who are close to you. All of those things are more things that, that I guess sometimes a significant other in their life or someone who's close to them would notice. And, you know, so, and again, we talk about insight, the role of insight where, you, know, you could say to somebody, you know, hey, there's something going on. You maybe, you know, want to look at getting some treatment for. Again, there are a lot of people who have very functional PTSD or very functional with their PTSD and can manage to kind of categorize and sort of, I imagine in myself that it's this uh, big chest of drawers. And in that chest of drawers are all these small little drawers that I can open. And there's things in those drawers that I don't necessarily are not pleasant, but I'm capable or able to just kind of leave them in the drawer and shut the drawer and only kind of open the drawer when I feel like I need to open the drawer kind of thing. And, and to me, that's kind of my analogy of how it works in my head. I don't have a lot of intrusive thoughts. I don't have reliving. I don't have the anxiety. I don't have the hypervigilance. I don't have a lot of those other things. And the anger thing, eh, you can ask my wife about that one. Um, <laughs> or me, little, your best uh, friend. You know, so I'm kind of a crabby old man, but that's, you know, yeah, exactly. And, and I think that shit reared its ugly head a little bit much, but um. But that's too, you know, again, it's yeah. the, the taking a deep breath. I stop myself all the time. And I, okay. I think, that, I think that part of what you're talking about, Jerry, is the internal factors that we all bring to the table. Like, you know, like we were saying earlier, if you come to be a CRNA and you already are a depressed person, then you're bringing that in. But by the same token, on the positive side, if you come to be a CRNA, but you already have a lot of internal resilience. You know, you've got a good self-concept, you've got good self-efficacy, you feel like I can do this, and you've got pretty good emotional intelligence about how to move through life and interact with people successfully, then I think that when the PTSD does come from an event that happened, you are able to better process it and handle it than maybe a person that doesn't have quite that much resilience. And I think that as educators, we see students that are all along that spectrum I'm thinking about my students now in particular, and some of them have come to me after having exactly the same incident happen clinically, and the ones that have more internal resilience, they're processing it, and they're okay. They're like, well, it really hurt my feelings when, you know, the surgeon said this, but I'm okay with it. I understand, you know, it was nothing personal, blah, blah, blah. Same thing happens to student B, on the other hand. And this student is like just devastated, like, well, I don't know if I can even go back now. You know, I just feel like I can't do this work anymore. And what did I do wrong and blah, blah, blah. And I think that the message to us as, as fellow caregivers and friends and colleagues are those people need a bit more help. 
they need some external support that maybe people that have a lot of internal resilience don't need. Well, and I think support systems are so important. You know, Jerry has known me through some of the most horrible parts of my life that have happened in and he was there. I tell the story all the time. My mother died when she was 50 and she got sick 22 days after I got out of anesthesia school. And we were studying for our boards. And back then they only gave boards twice a year. And we had gone to a review course and I couldn't sleep because, you know, my mother was sick and they told us she was going to die. But yet she has stressed me out because she said, if you fail your boards, I'll never forgive myself. And Jerry Hogan sat and put me in his lap while I cried like a baby um, and got me through all that, you know, and then you know, of course you've got your husband, they're a given, they're supposed to be. And now the most stressful time in my life right now is trying to get through at Yale. And so Jeremy knows to pick his damn phone up whenever (laughs) I call, because I've got to have a a gripe session about something. And Jeremy's like, okay, Sharon, let's put this into context. So, you know, a support system is a great thing to have. Thank God I got girlfriends and boyfriends that (laughs) I can can call. But I think that's, I think that has a, for me, it's a key piece of resiliency. And I'd be open to y'all's thoughts. I will just say this. Back in 2008, I think it was, and I could have the date slightly wrong. The Council on Accreditation, recognizing, you know, the wellness movement, put a requirement in the accreditation standards that programs start teaching about wellness and SUD and how important it is. And they strengthened that a few years later by saying that in the curriculum, we also need, you know, information about support systems and, you know, the importance of social connections and, you know, all of this wellness work-life balance stuff. And so I think that at least in our profession, we're trying to accept the realization that we've had that we need help and there's nothing wrong with asking for help. And we're trying to pass that along to our students so that we create, we help them to create a culture that's more cherishing of people than we were, you know, in our day. And we're trying to learn it ourselves too, that, you know, you need social support. I think I've read some information out there in the psychological literature side that one of the most important things that helps to save people is their social connections. All the people and and things that they have in their life, which you were just talking about, Sharon, somebody that will let you sit on their lap and cry if you need to because you know they're there for you. And I think as a culture of nurse anesthetists, we're trying to learn to embrace that instead of reflexively going, no, no, I'm, you know, you're, you'll be fine. And you're strong enough to get through this yourself, or you know, and it's a sign of weakness if you ask for help. We're trying to change that uh, that message and that paradigm. Yeah, and I agree with that 100. percent And you know, if we, we we need to move, start moving our thinking away from that lone wolf, zero mistake, zero error. You know, that's my life. Is you know, because who I don't see you do anesthesia. Nobody sees me do anesthesia. I do. You know, I mean, by and large, I'm in the room by myself unless I have a student. So, you know, I'm 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 lone wolfing it here with no no support. I'm the one who's responsible. You know, and if there's a mistake or anything that happens, I'm you know, something I'm going to be the one who. And that's stressful. It's very very stressful. And that's why I said I 
my focus with my students and what I would like to do on a greater basis nationwide is to, to look at giving them the tools that they need to deal with stress, to give them tools to help build more resilience if that's an issue for them, so that we can mitigate these issues later in their career. So that if we can, it's kind of like if we can front load some strategies, a toolkit of sorts with students and help them to understand, you know, there is, you know, be more resilient, then maybe we'll avoid some of the issues that we're seeing now because we didn't do that because when we were in students it was like you know know your role shut your hole do your job <laughs> your don't ask questions yeah. you know and you know I, th I think that part's changed but i think we've still got a long way to go oh yeah. what is it give a man a fish he eats for today teach a man to fish he eats forever yeah, yeah. or or woman sharon you know, we'll be our woman. Yeah, I'm yeah. not fishing full. <laughs> well, and you know, Sandy apparently is quite the fisherman. Sandy oh, is. Yes, I'll tell you what. Is. That's right. She is well, uh, a quarter of a million dollar fisherman. Yes, she, she won is. about a quarter of a million dollars. Yep. One of the things, one of the objectives of the study that myself and my colleagues have put together is actually to try to collect some of that information that Dr. Hogan was talking about. We've asked questions on there about what kind of wellness approach does your program use to the faculty? We're surveying the faculty as well as the students, and we're asking them what kind of wellness approach, because right now we don't have any data on how people are actually operationalizing that rule from the Council on Accreditation. We just know that, that they have some kind of wellness approach. And from faculty all over the country, I've heard it can range from, we give them a link online to wellness information, to we have an entire course on wellness, you know, that's like a whole semester long. So we have all of this huge range of what we're offering. So one of some of the items that, we're, that we got on our survey are trying to ask, what are you offering and how well do you think it's working? And we're asking the students on their side, how well do you think your wellness program is working? So maybe we can nail down some of the approaches that we're using that are better and some that are not as good so we can improve them. Chuck, I think that's um, very good points. And, uh, you know, as we kind of conclude here, is there anything else you would like to to get across to our listeners? You know, one of the things that that I got from this, too, and it's something that you said early on, but is the fact that suicide can be prevented. And, uh, you know, maybe as we conclude, you can kind of talk about that for just a moment as well. Absolutely. Suicide can be prevented. They've, you know, there's been a lot of work done that shows that very clearly. And we actually have a lot of people that have been involved in suicide. They, they made an attempt on their life and survived. And now some of those people, wonderful people, are volunteers in suicide recovery groups. They talk to mental health groups aimed at preventing suicide all over the country and share their experience, strength, and hope with others so that they can serve as examples. I survived and you can survive. And so that alone provides us with great evidence. There's actually a very simple program now that was put together back in 1995 by a psychologist named Paul Quinnett. It's called QPR. And the QPR stands for question. Um, if you think someone is suicidal, you question them. You say, are you thinking of suicide? Are you thinking of taking your life? directly. If they say yes, you persuade them. That's the P part, QP. You persuade them that there is another solution. There is hope out there. I represent this hope because I'm interested in you and I want you to do well. You persuade them to listen to you 
And then the R part is referral. Then you find help for them. Whatever the situation demands, you provide it so that they do not take their life or harm themselves. All the way from taking them directly to treatment yourself to sitting there while they call the 800 suicide prevention lifeline. And make sure to the best of your ability that you get the message across to them. There is another solution to this problem. Life is not all pain. There is joy ahead for you in life. If you'll just listen to me, I'll help you figure that out. Excellent. So that's what I would say. There is a suicide problem, but it is preventable. And we all, we see something, we should say something and try to save lives of, of our friends, family, and colleagues. Yeah. And a lot of resources out there. And Chuck, thank you. And Jerry, as we kind of conclude here, I know we spent a lot of time with you talking about PTSD. Anything you want to conclude on for the audience? You know, the biggest issue is is the recognition and the seeing that the changes in people and noticing, you know, if people are having, you know, maybe they're, they're a little jittery, a little over alert, they're having some difficulty sleeping or concentrating, anger, irritability, avoidance, all of those things. They could be suffering from PTSD and, and maybe you might want to refer them, you know, they might not want to tell you what the trauma was. They may not want to discuss the trauma. It may be something they don't want to talk about, but giving them the opportunity to talk if they choose to be a listener, be an active listener. That's the biggest thing for me is active listening. I, one of the things I'm learning to do therapy that I learned was that uh, therapy is not advice. You know, therapy is listening. Yeah. And so mm. you sit and you, and you listen. And, um, you know, and, and when, you see, when you see people talking about the, the anhedonia that we talked about earlier, the guilt, the shame, those other things, there should be triggers to you that there's something else going on. And it certainly never hurts to ask, you know, where, how are you doing today? And take interest in with COVID, one of the biggest issues that I find is that that social interaction piece for a lot of people has just gone practically absent. And I think yeah. that a lot of resilience, like you were saying, is tied to, to social connectedness. And so, you know, I think that's another reason why we're seeing seeing issues right now. I don't know. I mean, I can tell you, me personally, I'm, I'm tired of, of being socially isolated. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm tired of it. And I live in a state where there's no rules. It's the Wild West down here. You can go <laughs> eat anywhere you want, do anything you want, go to a theater, go to wherever, everything's wide open. But, you know, and I've had both my vaccines, but, you know, it's uh, both shots, but it's still, you know, something you, you're, where you never thought in your lifetime you'd ever worry about going out to eat. Right. You know. And, and that, that, that wears on people, too. Definitely a different world, for sure. Yeah. Chuck, now, when does your when are you deploying your study, and who are the targets that you will be getting it to? Because we want our listeners to understand how they can help you in this. Okay. Well, let me start by reminding everybody that AANA has a lot of stuff online. AANA.com forward slash wellness or forward slash suicide or forward slash PTSD. There's a lot of information in the AANA website. So I just want our listeners to know if they want to learn more about this, they can certainly go there. And there's a lot of stuff there for them, including the number of the suicide prevention helpline. Now about my study, we are just now wrapping up our IRB application at UCLA. And we expect to have approval in the next week or so. And then we are going to be in contact with the AANA to use their database and we will be sending the survey. It's a survey study, and there's two forms of the survey, one for faculty and one for students. We're going to send the survey to every program director in the country, and we're going to send the, the faculty survey to every program director in the country, and we're going to send the student survey to a sample of about 3,000 students. And again, we're hoping to get a good response. We would urge people if they see the survey, they hear about it, 
please urge students and faculty to respond to us because if you do, it can only help us as we try to save lives and, and grow a better culture. You know, that's really what we're all about is trying to make people better, trying to make people more well and trying to give them that toolkit that Dr. Hogan was talking about to maybe do better in their lives going forward with all the stresses that we're always going to encounter. Well, Chuck, Jerry, uh, both amazing CRNAs and wonderful people. We want to thank you both for being being on the show with us today, all that you're both doing to help the CRNA community at large and all that you have done and all that you're going to do because uh, this is meaningful work. And Sharon, I think that's a wrap. think so. Yeah. So uh, we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mask with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show, you know, the single best way to help us grow, Sharon, is to tell everybody, you know, like, subscribe and share. There you go, because we're in the top 50 medical podcasts. And as Sharon always says, we want to be in the top 10. And Jeremy always says, want to be number one, be number one. So until next time, it's a wrap. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. 
Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit osaemr.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.